This is the third week that we've been taking a, uh, a fresh look at the Jesus of the Bible. Every culture, as we've talked about already, every culture develops its own view or its own picture of Jesus. The question that we've been dealing with in this series is, what kind of picture does the Bible actually paint of Jesus Christ? We've seen movies, and we probably have our idea of which actor portrayed Jesus the best. Uh, by the way, it, the best one was Jim Caviezel by, by far, but, uh, but you can argue with me and be wrong about that later on. But the question is, what picture does the Bible actually paint of Christ? And here's the thing. I believe this. I believe that every page of this holy book contains Jesus Christ. No matter where you open this book, Jesus is either implied, he's either pictured, he's either described, or he is proclaimed. Jesus is in every chapter, every verse, every jot, and in every tittle. This book drips with Jesus. What I'm praying that we're coming to understand through the series is that whatever picture, whatever idea, whatever imagination that you may have about Jesus, it's just not big enough. How are we supposed to be able to, in our finite minds, grasp the entire picture of someone who is infinite? The truth is that we're not going to be able to grasp the entire picture. But what picture we do grab and what pieces we do grab of Christ, we need to make sure that they line up with Scripture. Because today we have a responsibility in the culture that we live in to properly portray our Savior. There are a lot of people who would love to hijack Jesus and make him somebody that he never intended to be and lead people astray. The Bible says that Satan is the author of deception and division and disruption. And Satan would love if we get Jesus wrong. And he would really love if the church got Jesus wrong. Because if the church got Jesus wrong, who's going to get him right? Right? And I love this. This is what makes Jesus so unique and so different from any other religious figure or icon out there. Is because he desires to be known so much that he came to us. Matter of fact, in all other religions, all other faith systems, and all other, all other ideas, here's the basic tenet of all other world religions but Christianity. In all other world religions, man is supposed to reach to the higher power. Only in Christianity do we find that God reached down to man. This is the primary and fundamental difference in following Jesus Christ and following another God, uh, a false God that is out there. All other false gods have such a small ego about themselves that they say, sacrifice, do whatever it is to prove your love to me and work your way to me. Jesus said, you can't work your way to me, so I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come to you. We cannot forget that understanding. We cannot let go of that, of that primary principle that's so different. And it is important that we have a clear picture and a clear understanding of who Christ is, not just for our own sakes, not just for our own sakes, but for those that we witness to, those that we come in contact with uh, on a daily basis at work or at school or at uh, in the marketplace or wherever it is. We may be family reunions, wherever it is that God may have us. We need to know who Jesus is to be able to portray him clearly in a culture that stumbles over Christ. Because in a, in a culture that stumbles over who Christ is, we are commissioned to make him known. We say that again. In a culture that stumbles over Jesus, we are commissioned to make him known. A lot is said today, especially in the, in the realm of politics, of what Jesus would do or how Jesus would vote or how Jesus would handle certain issues. 
We can't just put our filter on who Jesus is. We need to look at the Jesus of the Bible and follow him. And to be a witness, we have to know what we're talking about. We have to have had an experience in order to be a witness. In John chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 6 and 8 as our opening text, and then we're going to be looking at some other verses. But in John chapter uh, 1, verse 6, is John the Baptist, was, we are told, was sent to be a witness. He was sent to foreshadow the coming of the Messiah. And he had a job to do, and he had to get it right. He had to paint the proper picture of Jesus, who he was, what he would do, and what he was about, and why he was important. And here's what the Bible says about John. Here's his job description. And I believe it's our job description as well. So you can read this, and you can put your name in here. The Bible says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, if you want to personalize this, read that again to yourself and say it was a man or there was a woman sent from God whose name was, put your name in there. Because if you're a child of God, you're sent by God to proclaim Christ. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light. Again, the capital letter means it's a name. Jesus is the light of the world. So it's speaking of Jesus. That all men through him might believe. He, John, was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. What we need to understand is you and I, we're not the light. We are light, little L. We are salt and little L light, shining little rays that emanate through us. But that light doesn't come from us. It comes from Jesus Christ through us. This is our job description as Christians. We are sent to be witnesses and bear witness of that light. And get this, you may have a job today and you are counting down the days to retirement when you don't have to hold yourself to that job description anymore. There is no retirement date from this job description until we draw our last breath. This is our job description. The word witness is used 47 times just in the book of John alone. It's one of the major themes throughout the book of John is being a witness For Jesus Christ, a witness is someone who tells what they have personally seen, what they have heard, what they know or what they've experienced. There was a little known court case several years back that this court case could only have happened in Kentucky. All right. Apparently one night, two guys, I don't know what happened, but they got into a fight and maybe they had too many or maybe they were just I don't know. Maybe I had a bad day or whatever. But uh, but these two guys got into a fight and they started jabbing at each other verbally. Then they started jabbing at each other physically. And one guy bit off the ear of another guy. There was only one witness to the whole event, one witness to this whole thing. Everybody else had gone home and cleared up. There's this other guy. And this guy's name was Billy Joe Bob Jr., Okay, so he was like, and I don't want to sound too, you know, I don't want to offend anyone in here, but he was just a good old boy, Kentucky redneck. All right. Had his bibbed overalls on and he had, you know, he had, he had two pairs of clothes. He had his bibbed overalls that he wore during the week. And then he had his Sunday go to meeting clothes, which were bibbed overalls that had just been washed. Okay, so this is the kind of guy he was. All right. And uh, he was the only witness that was called to the stand. Well, there was this slick new lawyer that had come down from New York City for some reason to Kentucky. And he was trying this case. It was one of his first cases. And he got in, and he was, the, uh, uh, he was the defense attorney for the guy who was accused. And the guy took one look at, the, at Billy Joe Bob Jr., and uh, he said, man, all i got to do is discredit this country bumpkin. And he pretty much discredited himself just walking into this courtroom. He said, all i got to do is discredit him, and my guy walks free. And so he just strolls on up, slick back hair, got his nice, got his nice suit on straight from, uh, straight from Fifth Avenue. And he walks up to the witness stand and he looks at him and he says, 
Billy Joe, Bob, how are you doing today? He goes, sir. He leans into the mic, sir, it's Billy Bob Jr. Thank you. Thank you. I want to respect my dad. All right, he goes, okay, Billy, Joe, Bob, Jr., we will respect your dad. He looked at the man and he said, uh, he said, were you there uh, when the argument started, sir? And uh, he looks at him and he said, uh, no, sir, I wasn't there when the argument started. The man said, looked at him and he said, were you present when it became a physical altercation? He said, sir, if you mean was I there when they started a tussling? No, I wasn't there when they started a tussling either. God looks at him, he gets this wry smile on his face. He said, so you weren't present when the defendant allegedly bit the man's ear off. Billy Joe Bob Jr. hung his head and he said, no, sir, I wasn't there. At that point, young, slick attorney turns around full of pride in himself and he walks away. And as he's beginning to say, I rest my case, Billy Joe Bob Jr. leaned into the witness mic and he said, but I was there when he spit the ear out. (laughs) Case dismissed, right? (laughs) Again, a witness is someone who shares what they know, have seen, heard or experienced. And here's the thing, as the church of Jesus Christ, if we claim to be Christians, we claim that we have experienced the saving power and the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That he lives with inside of us, that the presence of the Spirit is inside of us, and as witness, we need to bear witness of that light that is inside of us. My question is, if we have this great great light living inside of us, why is our light so diminished in our culture today? I believe it's because we have allowed the darkness and those who would like to diminish that light begin to cause us to look through the filter of the darkness rather than bringing the light to bear in the culture around us. Because we have not gotten a clear picture of Christ. A witness for Jesus Christ. How much do you know about him that you can share with a lost world? We're told that that's our duty. How much can you share about Christ with a lost world? Here's what Jesus said. This is some of his last words before he ascended to heaven in Acts chapter 1. But you shall receive power. What that means is we don't have an excuse to be silent because he's going to give us power. The power is the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We sang this morning, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. How much do we live our lives every day? Do we say that to the, to the Holy Spirit with inside of us? Holy Spirit, you are welcome. I will not try to hold you down today. I want you to live through me. I want to be a vessel for you to use to bring your kingdom here on earth. But he says, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall take that power and be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth. And, and, and that's a message for another time to pick this verse apart. But basically what that means is anywhere you go, everyone you meet, doesn't matter if you like them or not, we're supposed to be witnesses. So as we looked at the last, uh, we looked today at two uh, more vital facts We must know about Jesus today. We need to remember the first four. The first thing that we talked about way back in the first week was the fact that Jesus is eternal. That there is no beginning and no end to him, which means that if he is eternal, he is limitless and we cannot box him in. The second thing we saw is that he is full of grace and truth, meaning that he is grace embodied. If Jesus were not present, grace would not be available. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. 
And none of us deserve salvation. None of us deserve heaven. But by God's grace, Jesus came and he died and he rose again. And salvation is made available to us all. He is also truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. Anybody ever gotten wrong directions before? Yeah, uh, it might use. And what's even worse is when you get a GPS, you open your GPS on your phone, they, you still get wrong directions. That's annoying as all get out, isn't it? Now, no man in here has ever gotten wrong directions from his wife, right? Oh, nobody's brave enough to say it, at least. Okay, right? Jesus is the truth, and the truth the Bible says is what sets us free. Jesus also thirdly reveals God to us. As humanity, Jesus is the revelation of God. He's the express image of who he is. And last week we saw when John the Baptist was confronted by the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And he said, what are you about and what are you doing out here in the wilderness, baptizing people and stuff? What are you doing? Are you the Messiah? He said, no, I'm not the Messiah. But I am the forerunner. I am the witness of the one who is to come. And that man is the son of God. He is the son of God. Today we look at two more pieces of the picture. And the first one is this, is that Jesus not only is eternal, Jesus not only is grace and truth, he's not only the picture of God the Father, he's not just the Son of God, but now he is the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb of God. Now understand the full like scope that Jesus is filling out here. He is eternal. You can't box him in. He's grace and truth. He's a wonderful gift to all of us. He's the express image of God. He pictures God to man. He's the son of God, which means he has inherited all power and authority from God the Father. Now, this grand, majestic king of kings, lord of lords, powerful, rose of Sharon, the darling of heaven, lowers himself to be the lamb of God. And what that means is he's the sacrifice sent from God. The day after John gives his eyewitness testimony to the religious leaders, Jesus comes to visit John the Baptist as he was preaching at the Jordan River. Let's look a little further in John chapter 1 at verse number 29, and then we'll go to verses 35 and 36. The Bible says here in John, uh, John 1, 29, he says, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And then down in verse number 35 says, again, the next day after that, John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. John was doing the job that he was called to do. His job just shifted into something new. He went from foreshadowing the Lamb of God and that the Messiah would come to now all of a sudden here comes the Messiah and he immediately shifts to there he is and he points at him. My friends, I ask you this. Can you paint a clear enough picture of Christ through the way you live your life, through what you know of God's word, through your actions, through your words, through your deeds, that when they see what you're doing, you've painted a clear enough picture where you can say this, this is Jesus. This is the evidence of Christ in my life. You see, when when John the Baptist saw Jesus come, four important things happened. And I don't have them on the screen, so listen so you can write them down. This statement, behold the Lamb of God, is a four-pronged meaning. The first one is that it was a conclusion to John the Baptist's message. It was the conclusion to John the Baptist's message. Every sermon, every good sermon, I'll say that, should have a point of decision. Every good sermon should have a conclusion. That right there was a place for you to amen and send me a message, all right? We call this the invitation. In just a little while, when I finish the message, we're going to pray, and I'm going to invite people to come to the altar and make a decision or pray and and ask you, what is your personal decision in response 
to the word that you've just heard. And some of you are sitting here thinking, I wish the invitation were now. But it's not just yet. It's coming, I promise. John the Baptist is preaching, and he had one message to preach the whole time. The whole time he was there, the whole ministry that he had was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why was his message all about repentance? Because our problem is sin. Our biggest problem, every problem that we have in our lives, in our world around us today, all has a root in a three-letter word called sin. Every problem we have. The problems that you're having at home with your spouse is because of sin. Now, don't sit there and say, you're right, he did. You're right, she did. No, we have a problem with personal sin. Every problem we have is related to sin. The Bible says that we were good until sin entered in the world. And when sin entered in the world, death came in the picture by one person. It corrupted everything. And so John's message was important. He said, repent of your sin, meaning turn from your sin. Stop serving that. Stop walking towards that and walk towards the Messiah. Walk towards Jesus. Stop living under earthly kingdom standards, serving sin, and live under God's kingdom standards, serving me, serving Jesus, serving God. So John's message was repent, and he said, and be baptized, and make that commitment, make that public commitment, because the kingdom of God is at hand. So he had been preaching this, and preaching this, and preaching this, and beating that drum over, and over, and over, and over again. And baptizing, as he was closing out, he looked up on the hill, and he saw Jesus approaching. And man, as he was coming to that, that's an invitation. I can think about this. How awesome would it be as I'm ending my sermon, Jesus literally walks in the door and I'm saying, come to Jesus and he's there to come to. This is exactly what happened with John the Baptist. Jesus walks down and he said, behold, there is the Lamb of God. He's the one that I've told you about. He's the one that I've been preaching about. He's the reason you need to repent. He's the one to turn from your sins and follow. And church, it's still the same message today. He may not be walking over the hill or through these doors, but he sits enthroned in heaven today. And he wants you to follow him. He wants you to follow him. One day we read about in our text, we see that John approaches his invitation, the greatest object lesson. He says, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So it was a conclusion to his message of repentance. Repentance is found when we turn and run to Christ. Repentance is gained when we turn from sin and run to Jesus. And folks, here's the thing. You cannot fool yourself into thinking, I'm running towards Jesus while I'm also carrying sin with me. We can't do that. That's one of the reasons we've got Jesus wrong in our culture. We think that because we have Jesus, God's just okay with our sin. He's not okay with it. We run to Jesus. To grab hold of Jesus means we've got to let go of that sin that drags us down. It was also the conclusion of the Old Testament sacrificial system. When John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God, the people in the Jewish culture understood the significance of a lamb. They understood the metaphor of the lamb. The Jews were a shepherding culture. A lot of their economy was based upon the lamb, upon the sheep. Sheep herding and and, and taking care of sheep. It provided their food. It provided their wool. It provided their milk. It provided a whole lot of different things. But one other aspect of their economy at that time was it also provided their sacrifice for sins. And those lambs were in high demand because sin was going on everywhere. And in the Old Testament way of doing things, blood of a sacrificial lamb was the payment and the currency of forgiveness. 
And so what would happen is every, uh, in, every, in every herd where a new lamb was born, they would, in, they, would, uh, they would inspect it. And if it had no spot, no blemish, no problems, it was taken out of that, of that litter and brought to the temple fields to be cared for by the temple shepherd so it could be preserved as a lamb used for sacrifice. But in one fail swoop, in one motion of Jesus walking down the hill and being dunked under the water to be baptized, that changed the sacrificial system. Because now there is the Lamb of God who takes away not just the sins of your household, not just temporarily covers your sins, but the Lamb of God will cover your sins, my sins, the Gentile sins, past, present, and future. One Lamb for all sin. That's why Jesus is special. And so it changed that old system. There was no more need for the sacrificial lamb because one lamb for all sin had approached. It was also the beginning of God's salvation plan. Think about the difference in the old way and the new way through Christ. In the Old Testament, sacrificial lambs were brought by man and given to God. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is sent by God and given to man. Back in those days, the church looked a little different. You walked in, and when you walked in, there was a very bloody place on the front porch steps. That's where all the offerings were made, and the animals were slaughtered and blood out there. I think in our new location, that would not go over well, especially sitting beside a veterinary clinic. That would look terrible. I'm so thankful that Jesus is our lamb, once shed his blood for all sin, right? There was no more need for those sacrificial lambs. All of this pivoted on Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And folks, all of your hope, all of your eternity pivots on Jesus Christ. Nothing else. You can make plans for the future. You can try to make sure everything is taken care of. But all of your hope pivots on Jesus Christ. Have you placed your hope? Have you placed your faith? Have you placed your trust in him. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one who brought God's redemption plan. And the question is, which lamb are you holding on to today? We all have sacrificial lambs. We all have things that we sacrifice for what's important for us, to us. We live in a culture today where we sacrifice the things that mean something for the things that don't. Just to be honest. A lot of people sacrificed a lot. A lot of people sacrificed this time together with the body of Christ so that they could pursue something else. A lot of people have the mindset, hey, I'll settle down and get that Jesus stuff uh, in my life after I've lived, have my fun now. We don't know what day, we don't know what our days may bring. But you see, it brought in a new day. And the other thing that it is, and we cannot miss this. The fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God is a reminder of sin's heavy price. We cannot make light of sin. I almost think sometimes if we did have that altar, blood stained out in front, it would be a reminder every time we walked in just how our sin is in the eyes of God and just what it costs. Paul said this, I don't want to use my liberty that I have in Christ as an occasion to the flesh. We forget just how heavy our sin really is. Sometimes we think, oh, Jesus covered it, so that's my get-out-of-hell-free card. I'm going to be okay. Well, Jesus will forgive me. I'm going to go ahead and do this. Jesus will be okay with it. No, here's the thing. Jesus will forgive you. God will forgive you because he is an infinitely forgiving God, but he will never, ever, ever be okay with it. Ever. 
He's not okay with our sin. He's not okay with us just saying, I have an opportunity to know him more. I have an opportunity to have a clear picture of my Savior and have a relationship with him, but I'm just not going to take it. He's not okay with that. The Bible says to him that knows to do good and doesn't do it, it is sin. He may be infinitely forgiving, but he is very, very little on the understanding side. Oh, God understands. No, he doesn't understand our sin. No, he's not okay with our sin. And I know that's not a popular message in this anything goes kind of culture today, but he's not okay with it. And that's why we have to be careful and always be placing our heart and our minds before God and saying to the Holy Spirit, Lord, check me by the Spirit. Check me by the Spirit. Here's where a lot of people insert the wrong view of God and Jesus. Too many people don't think that God cares that much about our sins. We declare that God is love. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. That's true. But God is also just. He is loving, but he is also just, which means he cannot abide sin. The view or framework of Jesus is that he, that he just goes along with our sin because that's what love does, is a perverted view of love, and it is not God's brand of love. Yes, God's love is agape. It is unconditional. It is sacrificial. It is never surrendering, but it is also pure that it cannot abide sin, which God knows. The reason sin is wrong in God's eyes is because he knows it's wrong for us. Because it brings death. But it's so fun, right? Yeah. It wouldn't be a problem if it wasn't fun, right? You know, that's why vegetables are good for you, right? It's a metaphor for sin. Vegetables are good for me, but ice cream tastes better. But if I eat ice cream, we know what will happen. Oh, ice cream. Mm, 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 mm. Anyway, John the Baptist had to preach repentance. Jesus had to preach repentance. Jesus had to die because of our sin. This is why Jesus is the Lamb of God, because he had to deal with our sin by paying the price. If God is just going to overlook our sin, we don't need the cross. If God could just say, "Eh, you know, it's all good, you're good. I understand you're just trying to do the best you can, bro. You're fine. Go right on. I'll catch you in heaven. No, God is loving, but God is just. That's why Jesus has to be the lamb. Here's what the book of Hebrews says about sin. Almost all things are by the law purged with blood, meaning blood is the forgiveness. Blood is the currency of forgiveness. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin or remission of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Our sin carries a heavy price. Jesus paid that price on the cross. The debt is paid for all, but individually each must receive. Jesus paid for all the sin, but individually we must receive the payment, meaning we each must receive Jesus. So Jesus is the Lamb of God, and let's finish the statement out with this other picture of Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. Why? Sent to save the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus was born to save humanity. Jesus came to earth not to be made popular, not to have a nice story that we could tell at Christmas time or at Easter. 
Because if he was coming just for popularity, you can't beat the popularity he has in heaven already. He didn't come to be an artist's muse or to be depicted in movies. He's already the crown jewel and most famous resident of heaven. Jesus didn't come for his good. Jesus came for our salvation. He came for a purpose that was to save you and me from our sin. And to do that, he had to die because sin carries a heavy price that we cannot pay on our own. You cannot pay the price. Your parents can't pay the price. Your grandparents can't pay the price. Your Sunday school teacher can't. Your pastor can't. No one can pay the price for your sin but Jesus Christ. No one. Jesus came to die because that's the only way salvation could be possible. And Jesus, when he died, he died for all humanity. John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's significant because he could have said, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes the sins of Israel. And everyone would have cheered and been just as happy in that context there. But Jesus wasn't just coming to die for Israel. Jesus came to die for the world. And if anyone would believe, they would receive Jesus Christ as Savior. And there's a lot of people today who think, I've gone too far. I've strayed too much. I've done too much, too bad. God surely doesn't want me. Friend, you are mistaken. You've bought the lie and the guilt and the shame that sin brings. Understand that the power of the blood is the power to overcome and eradicate shame and guilt. In the presence of Jesus Christ, the light of the gospel bleaches away shame and guilt. I've got an extension cord that I've got stretched across my yard because I told you about the battle I'm waging with mosquitoes. Have I told you about that? I'm losing, by the way. But I got this like cool thing that's supposed to like kill all the mosquitoes there. Uh, it's only killing like a part of them. But I got this cord that I stretched across the yard and it was bright orange when I first got it. It's been out there for a couple of weeks and after laying in the sun, it's almost white now. Because those ultraviolet rays bleach that out. This is the light of the gospel. The light of Christ bleaches and eradicates the sin and the shame and the guilt from us. You don't have to walk around as a victim of your past in Christ. And your past mistakes. Jesus saved he died to save the world. Behold the Lamb of God, John the Baptist said, it takes away the sin of the world. And here's what 1 John chapter 2 says. And he is the propitiation or the payment for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the entire world. When he died on the cross, he shed enough blood to cover the sins of everyone, those who believe and those who don't. But that covering can only be accepted if you personally say, I Plead the blood of Christ over my sins. Have you done that? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? The price is paid for all, but each must receive. And I'm going to close with this, uh, this story, and it's a, it's a long illustration, so, uh, so hang with me. There was a, a certain professor uh, several years ago who worked, at a, uh, uh, who worked at a faith-based school, but it was loosely faith-based. But his, his name was Dr. Christensen. And so if you've got a professor on staff named Dr. Christensen, you give him the mandated Christianity survey, right, uh, to teach, right? So there was a required class that every freshman had to take called Christianity 101. And that class was not the most popular class on campus, Every single year, the professor um, was a studious man. He taught at this small college, 
And um, every student was required to take the class, but he had tried hard to communicate the essence of the gospel. He tried hard to communicate the beauty of Christ to his class. But every year that went by, he found out that most students saw the course as nothing but required hours. It was a drudgery. And it did not help that it was the last class of the week for most people. It was on Friday, and it was the last class on the schedule. And it was freshmen who really didn't want to be there. This year, the professor had a special student, and his name was Steve. Steve was only a freshman, but he was studying with the intent of going on to seminary for the ministry. Steve was already, on, on, uh, as a freshman on campus, he was already really popular. He was well-liked, and he was also an imposing physical specimen. The guy was huge, and he could bench-press most of the people that were in the class. He was the starting uh, center for the football team as a true freshman. And he was also the best student that was in the class as well. One day the professor asked Steve to stay back and talk to him after class as the semester was winding down. He said, Steve, I've noticed how good of a shape you're in. I wonder how many push-ups, how many push-ups can you do? And Steve said, well, I've done about, I do about 200 a day. I do about 200 a day plus what I do in the workout and, and, and in the gym and everything else. And he said, that's pretty good. But Steve, do you think that you could do uh, about 300 push-ups? You don't have to do them all at once. I have a class project in mind that I need you to do about 300 push-ups in sets of 10 for the project to work. Steve thought about it for a second and he agreed to do it the following Friday. So Friday came and um, last class of the day, all the students kind of began to wander in. Steve arrived a little bit early and he made sure that he was sitting right towards the front of the class. About that time, um, the class came, the class came in, they sat down, they pulled out their phones, they were already distracted, they just needed to get through this lecture by old Dr. Christensen, and then they could get their weekend started. So when class started, the professor pulls out this huge box of donuts. Now these weren't just like, you know, little itty bitty Krispy Kreme donuts, which some of you like Krispy Kreme, and that's okay, we'll pray that you get saved and understand that Dunkin' or North Lime is better. But um, they weren't like the Krispy Kreme. These were like the awesome ones, like cream-filled, chocolate-covered, sprinkles, pumpkin spice, uh, whatever. Whatever your favorite donut was, it was there, man. All of a sudden, as that box opens, all those freshmen, because, you know, the freshmen have got to get the freshmen 15, right? So they're looking at the donuts, and they're thinking, this is awesome. And the professor says, today we're going to do class a little bit differently. I've got enough donuts in here for every single person. Would you guys like a donut? At that time, the class erupted, cheering. They were excited. The phones were put away. They were excited because they're going to start their weekend off with a party in religion class. And so they were excited. So Dr. Christensen started his project at that point. He walks over to the girl in the front row, on the first row, or the front of the first row, and he said, Cynthia, would you like one of these donuts? And Cynthia goes, yeah, baby. Dr. Christensen then turned to Steve and said, Steve. Would you do 10 push-ups so that Cynthia can have this donut? Sure. Steve jumped down from his desk to do a quick 10. Then Steve again sat at his desk, and Dr. Christensen put a donut on Cynthia's desk. Dr. Christensen then went to the next person and asked, Joe, do you want a donut? And Joe said, yeah, I want one too. Dr. Christensen looked at Steve and said, would you do 10 push-ups so that Joe can have this donut? Steve did 10 push-ups. Joe got a donut. And it kept on going down the first aisle. Steve did push-ups for every single person before they got their donut. 
Down the second aisle he went until he came to a guy named Dorian. Dorian was on the basketball team and he was in just as good a condition as Steve. When the professor asked if he wanted a donut, Dorian's reply was, yeah, but I can do my own push-ups, prof, uh, or doc. And uh, the professor said, no, Steve has to do them. Then Dorian said, well, then I don't want one then. I can, do my, I can get my own donut. Dr. Christensen then shrugged and turned to Steve and said, Steve, Dorian doesn't want this donut, but would you go ahead and do 10 push-ups to cover the donut that he doesn't want? With perfect obedience, Steve started to do 10 push-ups. Dorian said, hey, I told you I didn't want one. He's wasting his time. Dr. Christensen said, look, this is my classroom. It's my class, my desks. These are my donuts, and it's my rules. Just leave it on the desk if you don't want it. Steve, do the push-ups. At this point, Steve had begun to slow down. He had just stayed on the floor between sets, and it was too much getting back up and back down, and you could see that he was beginning to sweat. The professor started down the third row, and the students were getting a little bit more angry by this time. Monique, do you want a donut? Sternly, Monique looked at him and said, no, I don't want a donut. Professor looked again at Steve. Steve, I need you to do ten more push-ups so Monique can have a donut that she doesn't want. Steve did ten. Monique got a donut. By now, a growing sense of uneasiness filled the room, and the students were beginning to say no, and there were all these uneaten donuts sitting on the desks. Steve also had to really put forth a lot of extra effort to get these push-ups done for each donut to be given. There began to be a small pool of sweat on the floor beneath his face, and his arms and his brows were beginning to get red because of the physical effort that was involved. Dr. Christensen then came to Evan, who was the most vocal unbeliever in the class. And he sent Evan over to watch Steve do each push-up to make sure that he did the full ten push-ups, nose on the floor, before he would hand a donut over. Dr. Christensen started down the fourth row. By that time, the bell sounded throughout the college building there that announced the end of every class. And he told all the students, do not leave or you will fail this class. Some students in the hall saw that Steve was doing push-ups and the class hadn't dismissed, so they wandered in and sat down on the steps along the radiators that ran down the sides of the room. When the professor realized this, he did a quick count and saw that there were now 34 students in the room, and he started to worry if Steve would be able to make it. He went on to the next person and the next and the next. Near the end of that row, Steve was really having a rough time and he was taking a lot more time to complete each set. Steve, said Dr. Christensen, do I have to make my nose touch on each one? Dr. Christensen thought for a moment, desperate to give Steve relief, but he said, yes, you have to pay the full price for each donut. And the professor went on. A few minutes later, Dimitri, a recent transfer student, came into the room and was about to come in when all the students yelled in one voice, no, stay out. Don't come in. Dimitri didn't know what was going on, so he came on in anyway. Steve picked up his head and said, no, let him come in and have a seat. The professor said, you realize that if Jason comes in, you will have to do 10 push-ups for him. And Steve said, yeah, let him come in. Give him a donut. Dr. Christensen said, okay, Steve, I'll let you get Dimitri's out of the way now. Dimitri, do you want a donut? And he's new to the room and hardly knew what was going on. said, absolutely. He said, give me a donut. Steve, will you do 10 push-ups so that Dimitri can have one? Steve did 10 push-ups very slowly. 
with great effort. Dimitri, confused, was handed a donut, and he sat down and began to dig in. Dr. Christensen finished the fourth row, and then he started on those visitors seated by the heaters. Steve's arms were now shaking with each push-up in a struggle to lift himself against the force of gravity. His back was swayed. His shirt was completely wet with sweat. His waist barely cleared the floor. By this time, there was no sound in the room except for his heavy breathing and his groaning at each effort to lift himself off the floor. There wasn't a dry eye in the room. The very last two students in the room were two young, men, two young women, both cheerleaders, very popular in the school. Dr. Christensen went to Linda in the second to the last and said, Linda, do you want a donut? Blake knew that no matter what she said, or Linda knew that no matter what she said, Steve would have to do ten more push-ups. She said very sadly, no thank you. The professor quietly asked Steve, would you do ten more push-ups so that Linda can have the donut she doesn't want? Grunting from the effort, Steve did ten very slow push-ups for Linda. Then the professor turned to the last girl, Riley, do you want a donut? Riley, with tears flowing down her face, began to cry. Dr. Christensen, why can't I help him? Dr. Christensen, with tears of his own, said, no, Steve has to do it alone. I gave him this task. He's in charge of seeing that everyone has an opportunity for a donut, whether they want it or not. When I decided to have this party on the last day of class, I looked at my grade book. Steve here is the only student with a perfect grade. Everyone else has failed a test, skipped a class, offered me inferior work. Steve told me that in football practice, when a player messes up, he has to do push-ups to cover his mistake. And I told Steve that none of you would come to my party unless he paid the price by doing your push-ups. So he and I made a deal for your sakes. Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so Riley can have the donut? Steve very slowly finished up his last push-up with the understanding that he had accomplished all that was required of him, having done not 300, but 350 push-ups. His arms buckled beneath him, and he fell to the floor. The professor turned to the room and said, And so it was that our Savior Jesus Christ on the cross pled to the Father, Into your hands I commend my spirit. With the understanding that he had done everything that was required of him, he yielded up his life. And like some of those in this room, many of us leave the gift on the table, never touching it, even though it's been provided. Two students helped Steve up off the floor and to a seat, physically exhausted, but wearing a very thin smile. You see, here's the thing. Jesus is not just one option of a lot of different political figures. He's the only one that could pay the price. And whether you take the gift or leave it there, it's been made available. Jesus paid the price. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And not only does he take away our sin for salvation, but he takes away our sin every day that we ask forgiveness as we walk with him. Because the more we walk with him, the more we realize just how much I need him. True Christianity is not a, hey, I got saved back years ago and I'm cool. No, true Christianity is I got saved and since then God has been showing me just how amazing he is. If the most amazing thing about your walk with Christ is that you get to go to heaven, you're missing the truth of the relationship with Christ. He walks with you and talks with you and he's there every day. So the question this morning is, do you want a donut? Here's the thing. The price has already been paid. You can take it 
You can leave it. You can be mad at God for the way he set it up. You can be apathetic towards God for the way he set it up. But this is it. Jesus Christ, the true picture of Jesus Christ, is the eternal king of glory who humbled himself to become the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He deserves our worship. He deserves our loyalty, our commitment. He deserves our walking with him just as much as he wants with us.